To download more lectures, learn more about our project, and to help support it, visit www.bayina.com dream. That's B-A-Y-Y-I-N-A-H slash dream. You are free to share these recordings with family and friends. Thank you and Jazakumullah Khairan for helping us make our dream a reality. A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Ar-Rajeem Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim La Uqusimu Bihadhal Balad Wa Antahillun Bihadhal Balad ولسانا وشفتين وهديناه النجدين فلقتحم العقبة وما أدراك ما العقبة فك رقبة أو إطعام في يوم ذي مسغبة يتيما ذا مقربة أو مسكينا ذا متربة ثم كان من الذين آمنوا وتواصوا بالصبر وتواصوا بالمرحمة أولئك أصحاب الميمنة والذين كفروا بآياتنا هم أصحاب المشأمة عليهم نار مؤصدة الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم اجعلنا منهم ومن الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر آمين يا رب العالمين ثم أما بعد ونسجان السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته إن شاء الله تعالى We're beginning our study of the 90th surah Surah Al-Balad, and we'll begin by understanding its connection to the surah that came before it. Allah Azza wa Jal begins as Imam Al-Alusi rahimahullah says, Aqsama subhanahu bil-balad al-haram, meaning when, he, when Allah Azza wa Jal says, no, rough translation, no, I take an oath or I swear by this city. I take an oath by this city that that city is referring to the sacred city, meaning the city of Makkah. Now, just some things about the city of Makkah. What is the first feeling a believer gets when they get to that city? You know, there's a different kind of feeling you get when you go to a tourist resort or you go to some place you want to visit, that you've been visiting family or a wedding or something like that. But when you go for any reason to the house of Allah or the city in which the house of Allah is built, the unanimous feeling of a believer that they are overwhelmed with at first is this tranquility, this calmness that overtakes them. And there's this, this sense of all your troubles almost disappearing at the sight of the house of Allah, Allah Azza The previous surah according to Imam al-Biqa'i rahimahullah ended on the note, Ya ayyatuhan nafsul mutma'inna. The last passage of Surah Al-Fajr was the tranquil person, the nafs that has reached tranquility. And what is the center of tranquility on all of this earth? 
and what is the place from which this itminan will begin and transfer to all of the lands on this earth that is the house that Ibrahim السلام, had built and made dua at that's the house of Allah Azza wa so it begins with that city from that same place with which tranquility begins in the previous surah the second thing we found in the previous surah at the end again irji'i ila rabbik return to your Lord and what is it that the person is doing when they're going to Hajj or to Umrah they're returning to their Lord and what is it a mimicking of the Hajj as, as many Mufassirun have commented the Hajj and the actions at the Hajj and the clothing that we wear are a, a symbolic representation of Yawm Al-Qiyamah when we come before Allah with nothing we come before Allah with basically nothing and really the clothes which emulate the clothes that we're gonna wear at our death we're wearing them at that point. So we return to our Lord. And so the previous surah had literally said, return to your Lord. And Allah swears by the city in which we, on a yearly basis at least, engage in the act of returning to our Lord. Then it says, رَاضِيَةً مَرْضِيَةً This is the hal of the, the state of the person who returns to their Lord. Allah says, رَاضِيَةً Meaning the person themselves is content. They're happy, they're satisfied. And that is again, one of the greatest joys in the life of a believer is to get to see the house of Allah. Many, you know, the, in our times it's so much easier because it involves some paperwork and a few hours of sitting, you know, on a cushioned seat, right? And on a chair that's flying through the air at hundreds of miles an hour. But there were people that came before us, generations upon generations, that traveled for months, if not a year, if not two years on end, traveling halfway across the earth on, like animals to get to the house. And with all that trouble, when they get there, they finally become happy. That's like the greatest joy of their life. Radiyatan. And one part of that joy is that Allah has now cleansed your, 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 your sins. So the hajj that is accepted, the hajj that is accepted is an indication in and of itself according to the Messenger's promise وسلم, of the cleansing of our sins. So Allah is pleased with you, which is the word mardiyah. Meaning Allah is Himself content with you. So this, and then the next statement we found at the end of Surah Al-Fajr was فَدْخُلِي fi ibadi, Enter in the midst of my servants, enter into the midst of my slaves. What are we doing at the occasion of going to the house of Allah? At that city, what happens there? We enter into the company of Allah's ibad, that are all engaged in one thing, the slavery to Allah. Then he says, وَدْخُلِي jannati, Enter my paradise, right? Enter, he tells the nafs, that tranquil nafs, to enter the paradise. What is the closest thing to Jannah on the earth? And which part of the earth has a piece of Jannah in it actually? This is the house of Allah Azza wa How beautifully the previous lessons have been now brought back to mind by Allah beginning this surah by swearing by that, this, this city. Another note that is important to mention that Al-Biqa'i talks about rahimahullah. He says in Surah At-Teen we find Amin. Allah swears by the city there also, but He says Al-Amin, this, this safe city, this, this peaceful city. So there are other, there's an adjective added to al-balad which is al-ameen. We don't find that word here. And this is according to the principle of likulli kalimatin siyaq. Every word has a situation, and every word in the Qur'an has a place, and it cannot be moved from its place. The, the element that is being highlighted in Surah Tutin, when we get to that surah, we will see, is the miraculous gifts of Allah to certain regions. And the amn of the city, the safety of the city of Makkah, is one of the miraculous gifts Allah has given that city. But that is not what is being highlighted in this surah. Actually, rather the opposite. What is being highlighted in this surah is the conflict that is already brewing and is reaching some sort of a boiling point already in Meccan times between the call of the Messenger and those who chose to follow him 
against those who are now standing right against it. So the peace is actually disrupted, so the word Ameen isn't used. And we'll see uh, other manifestations of that. The other difference is, there are different ways in which an oath is taken in Arabic. You can use the harf, the preposition wa, like wal-asr, wal-teen, wal-zaytun, etc. Right? Or even wahad al-balad, that was used. But then you can also use, for example, bi. B is also used. It's not used commonly in the Qur'an, but you could say, for example, in Arabic you could say, Wallahi, I swear by Allah. You can also say, Billahi, I swear by Allah. It's a different usage of the word in, in terms of taking an oath. But then, r- rather, another usage is to spell it out. Uqsimu Billahi. Or يقول, Uqsimu Bihad al-Balad. I swear by this city. Actually spelling it out with a verb, I swear by. Not just saying by this city, but saying I swear by this city. Now this is not normal usage. First and foremost, understand that in the Qur'an, Allah never says uqsimu. He never says uqsimu. He says la uqsimu. So la uqsimu bi yawmil qiyamah, fala uqsimu bi mawaqi'in nujum, fala wa rabbika la yu'minun. Even then, wa la first, la first. But uqsimu by itself doesn't occur. Fala uqsimu bi shafaq, we've read in a previous surah. Right? So this la, its significance is something that is talked greatly amongst the linguists and grammarians and theologians and mufassirun actually, scholars of exegesis of Qur'an, the significance of that la. And here are a few things that we should know about that la. First and foremost, it is not to be taken literally or in connection with uqsimu. For the most part, most scholars say that's not the case. Meaning if you said la uqsimu and you translated it, I don't swear by this city, that wouldn't make sense. Some scholars have actually even tried to make sense of that. Some ulama in our past have said, for example, Mufti Thanaullah uh, Uthmani Panipati, who wrote Tafsir Madhari, talked about the benefit of just connecting it together, saying that this oath in its, the, the statement I'm about to make is so powerful that I don't even need to take an oath. That's what Allah is saying. But that's not the majority opinion. Let's look at what the majority opinion is, and the stronger position really is, on the use of the word la. La actually underscores the existence of a counter-argument. Allah is about to say something that people believe something to the contrary. And Allah, is, before He teaches them what the right thing is, He says no to everything they believe. So it's basically a lot of nonsense is being said and before you say the right thing, you have to silence them, right? So the way to silence them is what? No. La. And now you start with your statement. And this is common usage in language. Not, some, not something very technical, something even we use today. Right? So in, in our times we could say something like, stop, I'll tell you. No, 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 let me tell you, etc. Right? So this is la of negating all other ideas. Others have commented actually that this la refers to the false attitudes that were highlighted in the previous surah. وَأَمَّا insan إِذَا مَبْتَلَى the two times when the human being is thoroughly tested, you recall last week, when the human being is tested with benefits and prestige and gifts in this world, or they are tested when Allah calculates their risk and puts a strain, puts a limit on how much they're going to earn. And they, would, they thought that this or this, this is ease and this is difficulty. And we will see why Allah is negating that idea and how Allah is negating that idea as the surah proceeds. So now let's look at the words, Bihad al-Balad. So he swears by this city. The word balad also came up before in the previous surah. We found, for example, Allati lam yukhlaq mithluha fil bilad. We found Alladina tagaw fil bilad. The word bilad came up before in the previous surah, but it was talking about other cities. The cities in which corruption was rampant in the time of Ad, Thamud, Iram, Fir'aun. These are the nations which caused disruption in the cities. 
But now after giving them a historical lesson, it needs to be said that those cities are not just lessons for the past, these lessons you're supposed to learn from which city now? This one. So there's, there's a transition made from the mention of those cities to the current event. And this will be a, a continuous style of this, this section of the Qur'an. Allah will mention something in the general or in the past and then bring it to current events. Meaning the life of the Prophet himself وسلم, and the events that surround his struggle. So it begins, لَا أُقْسِمُ بِهَذَا الْبَلَدِ this, uh, by the way, Allah Azza wa Jal, by swearing by something, there are two ways, we, we've talked about this whenever a surah of oaths comes up, but it's important to review, I think, pretty much every time. Number one, an oath has been considered a means by which something is elevated and honored. So by Allah swearing by the city, it is an honoring of the city. Another is that it is a means by which people's attention has been grabbed for something that's about to be said. But what is about to be said has necessarily to do with what you swore by. So for example, if you're swearing by an emergency or, or something like that, you swear by something that has, I swear by fire, there's an emergency. Right, so you swear by something that will catch the people's attention. So the jawab al-qasam or the muqsam alayhi, what's called, what's coming later on, the ayah laqad khalaqna insana fi kabad, that, that ayah necessarily has to do with this city and what's going on in this city. Okay? So, la uqsimu bihad al-balad. وَلَمْ يَصِفْ بِالْأَمْنْ بِأَنَّهُ لَا يَنَاسِبُ السِّيَاقِ سِيَاقَ الْمُشَقَّةِ بِخِلَافْ مَا فِي الدِّينِ This is what Al-Alusi uh, rahimahullah commented. He said, the, the word Amin, like I said, was not mentioned here because it doesn't appropriate in this surah because this surah is all about conflict and not about peace and not about tranquility as is the case in Surah Al-Teen. Okay? Now, وَأَنْتَ حِلٌّ بِهَذَا الْبَلَدِ Al-Biqa'i wrote something very beautiful. He said, فَقَدْ وَقَعَ الْقَسَمْ he said the oath occurred first with the leader of all cities, the chief of all cities, and then the chief of all the slaves of Allah. So, and you, meaning the messenger of Allah, وَأَنْتَ حِلٌّ بِهَذَا الْبَلَدِ The word hill is a little difficult to translate. Well, we're going to take a step-by-step approach. I'll just use the Arabic word for now. You are hill in this city. You are hill in this city. So we're going to have to understand this word hill in a little bit of depth, inshaAllah ta'ala. First and foremost, this is a continuation of the style of the previous surah. Why? Because in the previous surah, Allah spoke to His Messenger also, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Alam tara kaifa fa'ala rabbuka bi'ad. Even at the end, the first ihtimal, the first application of ya ayyatuha nafs is who? Is the Messenger of Allah Himself first, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And when you talk about a tranquil nafs, who's the most tranquil of the nufus? It is the Messenger of Allah. So the first person mentioned here is the Messenger of Allah Himself, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now, Allah says you are hill in this city. You are hill in this city. Now the word hill comes from many many origins. And the amazing thing about the word hill is its variations are all single meaning. But this version of it can have a multitude of meanings. So for example, one of the synonyms of hill is mustahil or mustahal even. That has been commented on tafsir. What that would mean is you have become permissible in this city. Meaning the people of the city, even the mushrikun, they, they enjoy the peace of Makkah and they respect it. So much so they don't even hunt animals inside Makkah. They don't just kill a bird or an animal or you know, something like that for fun in the city of Makkah. They go outside to hunt because they consider this a sacred city. But when it comes to you, all of a sudden they've, they've considered it halal to try to kill you. Meaning the messenger is being told, a time is coming where this sacred law of the Meccans, they're going to make it halal on themselves. This which has been haram on them for so long, they're going to make it halal on themselves. Even they called it al-haram. Uh, 
even they called it a place in which killing is forbidden. It's, it's, not, it's not something that's allowed. But you are about to become halal for them literally. You're about to become halal for them. So what this illustrates is one very important principle. This, the forces of kufr, the forces of disbelief, that are against the forces of truth. Even the forces of disbelief have certain principles. Even they have a constitution, a law, certain ethics, certain lifestyles. What Qur'an calls tariqatikumul muthla in one place. When they talk to each other, they say your exemplary lifestyle. Meaning they uphold and take pride in their lifestyle. But when it comes to opposition with the Muslims, and especially with the messengers والسلام, or any who stand by their mission, then they are willing to break even their own rules. The rules that they pride themselves in, they're willing to break them. They're willing to forego them for the sake of opposition to Islam. So their hypocrisy, when they say we're standing by our principles and that's why we're fighting you, those very principles they break when it comes to fighting against the Muslims. So for example, in a nation where you will have this idea of, you know, due process, or everybody's equal before the law, etc, etc, etc. When it comes to something, some antagonism against a Muslim, all of those things will be put to the side. Right? In the, in the, in the time of Fir'aun, in the time of Fir'aun, one of their own was not attacked. One of the, you know, someone who was in, had that citizenship of the Fara'ina, their family, they were off limits. Musa salam was raised in that house. So he was supposed to be off limits. He was supposed to be. But his patience ran out. Fir'aun's patience ran out and he broke one of his own rules when he went after Musa salam. The same is the case with the Arabs. You would attack anyone in the world, but not one of your own tribe. You will not attack one of your own tribe. But did they, and they had to come up with a way to get around that problem. So what did they do? The scam was, the scheme rather was, to get one member of each tribe and to anonymously attempt to kill, so that the blame is you know, directed in every direction, and therefore there's no blame at all. So even, they were even willing to break their own principles in antagonism against Islam. Why is this important for us to note? When we do the work of Islam and when we spread the message of Islam and give da'wah and we talk about the forces that are against this deen, that are struggling against this deen, and then we expect from them justice. You're doing this and you're doing an injustice against Muslims etc. etc. Allah is mentally preparing us to expect injustice. Even by their standards. He's expecting us to expect or telling us to expect injustice even by the standards of those who oppose us. They will break their own standards in opposition to those who believe. And this is the, the nature of history and the history of the Prophet ﷺ. Certainly the history of the Messenger of Allah ﷺ. This is the first thing. The second thing about the word hil is that you, something will be made permissible for you, especially for you, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that has been never been made permissible before you. And this again from halla yahillu and halal. What this implies is that the conquest of Makkah, for one day and one day only, it was permissible for the Messenger alayhi wasalam, to, to order the execution of certain war criminals. There were certain war, you know, for the most part there was forgiveness on the day of the conquest of Makkah. But there were certain war criminals who had to go punished, who had to be punished. So for example, in some narrations, we find some, you know, uh, kuffar mentioned by name, like Ibn Hamdal for example, is mentioned by name that the Messenger commanded وسلم, his execution. Now on that day also, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, Inna Allah ta'ala harrama Makkah yawma khalaqa samawati wal ard. 
He says, no doubt it is Allah who made Makkah haram, meaning haram for fighting and killing, the day on which He created the heavens and the earth. فَهِيَ حَرَامٌ إِلَىٰ أَن تَقُومَ السَّاعَةِ It will remain haram until the hour is established. When there will be chaos in every land, there will be chaos there also. لَا تَحِلُّ لِأَحَدٍ قَبْلِي وَلَن تَحِلَّ لِأَحَدٍ بَعْدِي it has never been made halal for anyone before me, nor will it be made halal for anyone after me. وَلَمْ تَحِلَّ لِي إِلَّا سَاعَةً مِنْ And has never been made halal for me except for an hour within a day. Meaning that certain point at the day of the conquest of Makkah, it was made halal. Now this is by, by pretty much consensus a Makki surah. And by, the, by Allah telling His Messenger وسلم, the second thing, the first was they have made you become halal for them to attack. But you will be, it will be halal for you to also execute punishment on them. This doesn't make sense in the Meccan context. It only makes sense at the context of victory. So in that statement already is a guarantee of the victory of Islam. When the messenger is being told وسلم, it will be permissible upon you to execute these kuffar. And this is one of the interpretations that exists even among the Sahaba's time of this ayah. So you have people like Qatada radiallahu anhu, Hassan al-Basri rahimahullah, etc. holding very strongly to this opinion. So this is the second thing. On the one hand, their conflict is being illustrated. On the other, the victor in this conflict has also been illustrated in وَأَنْتَ حِلٌ بِهَذَا الْبَلَدِ Here's the third meaning, which is also very beautiful and powerful. The word hill also comes in the meaning of arriving or descending. And actually in this meaning, we find certain, uh, certain expressions of the Arabs. For example, مَا زِلْتُ حِلًّا بِهَذَا الْبَلَدِ The Arabs would have an expression that I am going to remain situated in this city. I've landed in this city, I've gotten here, and I'm going to stay here, I'm not going to move. So they would say مَا زِلْتُ حِلًّا What by this the messenger is being told, you are a permanent fixture of this city. You are to remain in this city. In other words, even when they expel you, what's going to happen? You will be coming back. You will be coming back and establish your rule in the city. Another means by which the guarantee of victory has been given to the Messenger ﷺ. But again, this descent, literally the word halla means to untie. Literally the word halla, the root origin of halla means to untie something. For example, the dua of Musa lisani, Untie the knot in my tongue. Right? Same word halla is used. Now in this, one of the expressions we find among the Arabs is halal ahmal عند nuzul. Why did they talk about descending or coming into a city? Because when a traveler lands into the city, comes down from the mountain into the city and gets there, what does he do? He unties his bags. So the word hill was used for arrival because it symbolizes untying or unpacking your bags basically. What this illustrates actually is it's an implication. What's captured in the language is the Messenger ﷺ went up to the mount, he received revelation there, and now he came down into the city, has now arrived in the city. And this is why, this is the second honoring of Makkah. Makkah was already a blessed place, but Allah has given a second reason for which Makkah is blessed, which is what? That the Messenger himself has descended upon the city from after, after having received revelation ﷺ. So Alusi rahimahullah, like I commented before, says, يَسْتَحِلُّونَ إِخْرَاجَكْ وَقَتْلَكَ That بِهَذَا الْبَلَدْ means it has become halal for them to expel you or to even kill you, which is something that was not permissible for them to do for one of their own ever before. The other thing we find is an interesting hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa narrated in the tafsir of Ibn Kathir in the context of this ayah, مَا أُوذِيَ أَحَدٌ فِي اللَّهِ مَا أُوذِيتِ 
The Messenger says وسلم, nobody has ever been tortured or given pain for the sake of Allah alone, the way in which I have been. What I have suffered for the sake of Allah, no one has before me وسلم. So, this difficulty and struggle and this, you know, the word hill has a lot of heavy context in it, all of it implying struggle, but the very beginning of the, or the ending of the previous surah talked about this itmi'inan, this tranquility, right? This will only be attained by the one who is struggling for the sake of Allah Azza wa Allah Azza wa goes on to say, وَوَالِدٍ وَمَا وَلَدٍ Which is an interesting parallel with the previous surah. In the previous surah we found forefathers and ancestors mentioned, but of wrongdoers. So we found, أَلَمْ تَرَى كَيْفَ فَعَلَ رَبُّكَ بِعَادِ And then وَثَمُودِ وَفِرْعَوْنِ right? So you have these, this idea of lineage and, uh, and entire ancestries of wrongdoers or entire you know, progenies of kings and rulers that did wrong one after another. But then Allah shows the other side. And the other side of it is when Allah swears, وَوَالِدٍ وَمَا وَلَدٍ Which is atf from the first oath. And I also swear by the father and, how, and what he gave birth to and what he fathered. And ma here, I'm translating as what, but really yadullu ala ta'ajjub. It's used, what an amazing son he fathered. The, the father and what an amazing son he had. Okay? The father according to many mufassirun refers to Adam alayhi salam and walad to all of the children. But in the context of the surah, more so the mufassirun commented that the father refers to Ibrahim alayhi salam and the son to Ismail and through his lineage Muhammad rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Why is that particularly a, a stronger tafsir of the ayah? Because it began specifically with this city. The oaths began with this city in particular. And in this city, the father of the city would be Ismail, his father Ibrahim salam, and through his lineage finally the son, Rasulullah salam. Why are multiple implications possible for one word? Because there's no alif lam on it. Remember walayalin ashr in the previous surah and there were multiple interpretations possible that are simultaneously carried because there's no al on it. Same is the case here. Walidin wama walada. Walid doesn't have, it's not wal walid. There's no alif lam on it. So it could refer to multiple. So now, by making a mention of Walid, they, the, the Arab would think of Walid as Ibrahim salam. They would think back and would think about Ibrahim salam. By the way, we find the three prophets that are mentioned very often in the discourse of da'wah, especially in Meccan Qur'an, Ibrahim, Musa, Isa. Like for example, in, in Surah Al-Shura. وَمَا مَصَّيْنَا بِهِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ وَمُوسَى وَعِيسَى Right? Why Ibrahim, Musa and Isa? The Meccans, who did they consider their ancestry tied to? Ibrahim Who are the other audiences of the Prophet It's the Jews and the Christians. Who did the Jews affiliate with? Musa and the Christians? Isa So the three occur the most because these are the three that capture the ear of the audience of the Prophet the most. Anyhow. So, وَوَالِدٍ وَمَا وَلَدٍ By referring to it, Allah is making, making mention of the father who started this legacy, who, who inaugurated this city, who built the house of Allah and made dua, once that's situated in Surah Al-Baqarah, the other time in Surah Ibrahim, and finally the son who is the fulfillment of his dua, when he says, رَبَّنَا وَبْعَثْ فِيهِمْ رَسُولًا مِّنْهُمْ Our Lord appoint from them a messenger who is from among themselves. So those two are captured. Now the other thing, وَمَا وَلَدْ includes all the children also, whatever he, whoever he fathered. So it includes Rasulullah but it also includes the children of Ismail the vast majority of them who are doing shirk. 
So actually, in saying this one thing, Allah is saying, what an amazing father you come from, and how you, the Messenger of Allah are being true to the legacy of your father, and how shocking it is that the vast majority of his children are rebelling against the legacy of their own father by rebelling against you. You've become halal, haven't they forgotten that you are now doing what your father had done? They're reviving what your father had done, alayhi salam, right? So Allah is tying those arguments together by saying, لا أقسم بهذا البلد وأنت حل بهذا البلد ووالد وما ولد Now at the end of these oaths we find what's called Jawab al-Qasab. What are these oaths leading up to? What is the central subject of this surah? It is the Jawab al-Qasab. Allah says, لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي كَبَدْ لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي كَبَدْ This is the subject of the oath. For example, again, what I mean by subject of the oath is as follows. When I say, I swear, or I swear to you, then you're expecting me to say something more, right? You swear to me what? What is, it so, what is so important that you have to say, I swear to you first? So when Allah Azza wa Jal takes an oath, what is it that He's taking an oath about? That's called Jawab al-Qasam, the response of the oath. And that's what this ayah is. لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي كَبَدْ No doubt, we already created the human being as a matter of fact, or actually, la for tawkid here. We have already created the human being in an, another heavy word, the word kabad. Some of the Mufassirun commented, أَيْ شِدَّةَ شَدِيدَةَ وَمُشَقَّةٌ عَظِيمَةٌ مُحِيطَةٌ بِهِ إِحَاطَةُ الظَّرْفِ بِالْمَظْرُوفِ This is, uh, you know, kabad means this intense, intense, laborsome, difficult toil that is overwhelming you from every direction. The one in it is like air all around you. Allah says the human being has no doubt been created in endless and exhausting struggle. Exhausting, endless, laborsome struggle. That's what he says about the human being. Now remember the surah began with la, la, because the human being incorrectly thought when Allah gives him prestige and honor, then his troubles are over, and he's been honored. And when the risk goes away, then he feels like his his Lord has humiliated him. فَيَقُولُ Rabbi أَهَانًا He says, my Lord has humiliated me. But now we are learning, no, no, no. That's not true at all. لا أقسم بهذا البلد وأنت حل بهذا البلد ووالد وما ولد لقد خلقنا الإنسان في كبد implies no matter what your financial situation, no no matter what people think of you, whether people think you have an easy life or hard life, or whether you think you have an easy life or hard life, each and every human being is created in an intense struggle, in intense struggle. And the way Mufti Muhammad Shafi commented on this ayah is very beautiful. He said, no matter where you come from, human beings never stop worrying. Human beings are never, ever, ever free of worry. The richest one is worried about what, how their relationship is with their wife or their child or their parents or something or the other. Maybe it's something trivial to you. But it's something that bothers them and increases their blood pressure and they have to take pills for it. And it's laugh, you know, the, the sh- things that stress people in different parts of the world are drastically different. Right? Somebody is stressed out that their curtains don't match their carpet. And they're stressed out about that. Somebody is stressed out that they don't have a Blu-ray DVD player versus the old school. You know, they're stressed out about that. What's going to happen to their old collection? And it's stressing them. And in some other part of the world, somebody's stressed out that their child doesn't have food to eat tomorrow. Or there's going to be like, you know, the Muslims in China today, whether or not their family is just going to be attacked and destroyed overnight. Because of the chaos that's going on among the Uyghur people. May Allah help the Muslims there. Right? So, you know, di- different levels of stress. Somebody sitting in their bedroom stressing. 
right? In an air conditioning room, in conditioning room stressing about their 401k, which has gone down from 800,000 to 700,000, oh boo-hoo, right? You would say boo-hoo, but they're losing sleep over it. They're gone, they've gone crazy over it. The idea is, is it still something that's stressing the human being, keeping them from being relaxed? Keeping them from finally being tranquil. You think the, the one who doesn't have it thinks when I get it, I will have tranquility. Right? And the one who has it says, man, you don't know, there's a lot of stress. It's a lot of stress. So Allah lets you know, no matter what your situation, you are in kabad. You are in enormous struggle. Now the other thing that's really important to note here is, there are two kinds of, two paths that are going to be talked about in this surah. The path of Allah, the, the right way, right? And the path of other than Allah. You could follow a path which you follow Allah's dictates and that's going to be a struggle. Or you could follow what you want to do. But guess what? Both of them are a struggle. Neither of them is easy. You think one is easy and one is hard, but in both of them there's trouble. Both of them will lead you to stress and difficulty and labor, etc. Right? None of these paths are easy. So might as well struggle for something that will lead you to something better in the end. Right? People run away from the commandments of Allah thinking it's going to bring difficulty to life. Even Muslims today, or even you know, non-Muslims for sure. For example, we find non-Muslims making comments that are close to Islam. That are close to Islam. Making comments like, Yeah, I really like your religion. It makes a lot of sense. But it asks too much of me. It's asking me to change too many things. Right? It's too hard. So the way they're doing things, they feel this is ease, and the way Islam is telling them to do things is difficulty. Allah's commandments are difficulty. In Surah An-Nisa, Allah says, يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ لِيُخَفِّفَ عَنْكُمْ Allah intends to lighten your burden from you. Meaning your life is full of burdens, you follow His commandments, and it will become light. And this is in the context of ahkam, rulings that Allah passes in the surah. Allah knows what's better for you. The medicine tastes sour, but it's good for you. It brings ease and comfort and relaxation to you. So we'll, we'll talk more about that as the surah continues, inshaAllah ta'ala. So, لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي كَبَدْ The word kabad means the middle of the day, which for the Arabs is the toughest part of the day. It also means to be immersed in the middle of a sand dune, meaning it's the hardest for you to walk when your feet are ingrained in the sand and, and it's trouble walking. Toil, calamity, exhaustion. The word kabad also actually means, uh, refers to liver. And kibd was actually used when your liver gets injured. When your liver gets injured. And it's, it has the meanings of, of toughness and intensity and struggle. Some of the mufassirun commented, even among the sahaba there was the opinion that the word kabad refers to the fact that human being struggles to come out of the womb of the mother, struggles to drink the milk from the mother, struggles to learn to walk, struggle all across life. And these are the struggles. Others said, no, these are the struggles that all creatures share with us. So why would Allah say, لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي كَبَدْ There's some other heavy burden, heavy exhaustion that the human being suffers from. And uh, for example, we find Thanaullah uh, Panipati commenting in Tafsir Madhari, he says, also Mufti Muhammad Shafi said this, he said perhaps that this labor is the covenant that Allah put upon every human being before they even got here to acknowledge Allah as their, as their Rabb. That, that responsibility, that burden is upon them and as long as they deny that responsibility they have troubles in life. And when they accept that responsibility they have troubles but the kinds of troubles that will elevate their status. That will elevate their status. So, Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. Other mufassirun have said that the word insan here refers specifically to a kafir who went by the title Abu al-Ashd. And he was one of the great, the strong of the kuffar, who used to make bets like, you know, he's, he's going to take a piece of leather, and he's going to step on it and said, I'll give you all kinds of wealth if you can pull it out of my foot. So you'd have multiple people trying to yank this piece of leather from under his foot, and they couldn't do it until the leather would rip, but his foot wouldn't move. And some of the sahaba said this is referring to him, because kabad also means strength. 
So he, Allah created that human being with enormous kinds of strength and he was very wealthy and he spent a lot of money in opposition to the Muslims. So some referred it to that. But the majority of the Mufassirun say, really when Al-Insan is used, it's a commentary on the entire human race. And it's really Lam al-Jins. Right? All human beings are created in this toil and this struggle. Finally, Al-Alusi rahimahullah in Ruh al-Ma'ani says something really beautiful and powerful about this ayah. He says, وَفِي تَأْكِيدٍ كَوْنِ الْإِنسَانِ فِي كَبَدٍ بِالْقَسَمْ تَثْبِيتٌ لِرَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وسلم. By Allah emphasizing in this oath that human beings are meant for struggle. They can't escape it. In it there is a strengthening. And in it there is a confirming and a patting on the back of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He's being told, you are struggling for this cause, but you're not the only one. Struggle is going on all around. So the fact that struggle is taking place isn't something unique to you. It is part of human legacy. So be, you know, it's okay. They're going through a struggle too. You're not the only one. And this is, this is what's meant to happen. This is the qadr of Allah. And when he learns sallallahu alayhi wa that something is from the qadr of Allah, he is satisfied. He reaches that itma'inan that we spoke about in the very beginning. So now Allah Azza wa says, أَيَحْسَبُ أَلَّنْ يَقْدِرَ عَلَيْهِ أَحَدٍ This human being is created in struggle. And this, Allah mentions the psychological conflict of the human being. Probably many of you can identify with the psychological conflict. On the, on the inside there is this stress and this worry. Maybe this worry about, is about your finances. Maybe this worry is about you know, your, your reputation among people. Maybe this, you know, it's about your education, etc. Whatever it may be. But the human being is stressed out and he's in this cupboard, in this labor. Constantly exhausted in this labor. But at the same time, he has to maintain this reputation of strength. And, you know, I'm not weak, I don't need any help. And nobody's like, I'm number one, that sort of thing. On the outside. You have a lot of this, it's manifest in our society most clearly among celebrities. Like musicians and artists and things like that. You know, on the outside, I'm number one, and you know, this and that, and on the inside, they're overdosing on pills and killing themselves. In like, and they're depressed, and they have suffer from severe psychological trauma. But on the outside, these are the most confident people, and they want, you know, everybody should be like me, and everybody wants to be like me, sort of thing. So there's this conflict. Now look at this, the other side. On the one hand, the human being is created in struggle, and on the other, at the same time, أَيَحْسَبُ أَلَّنْ يَقْدِرَ عَلَيْهِ أَحَدٍ has he assumed that no one will have control over him whatsoever? It is only upon him alayhi qaddamat. Right? This dijar wa majroor, this prepositional phrase has been put early, which means it is only upon him that not a single one will have any control over. He is special. He's going to be above the law. He's never going to get caught. He thinks he's the one who's above everything else. And this attitude we find in, in little ways and big ways among human beings. There could be, you know, the, the arrogant ruler who thinks nobody will, who's going to come after me? Right? You have these people, many, uh, genocidal maniacs, who will command you know, war and, and give, bring death to th- thousands of people, and what's going on in their mind? Who's going to stop me anyway? What are they going to do about it? Right? Similarly, the abuse of power sort of thing. Similarly, this idea of being invincible can come as in, in something as small or something as minuscule as the attitude of a young man or a young woman. Hey, don't drive carefully. Oh, nothing's going to happen. I know what I'm doing. You know, nobody's going to... I'm not going to get caught. Right? So this, this idea of nobody will have control over him. Now the word ahad is interesting because it connects this surah to the previous surah. In the previous surah we learn, فَيَوْمَئِذٍ لَا يُعَذِّبُ عَذَابَهُ أَحَدٌ وَلَا يُوثِقُ وَثَاقَهُ 
Ahad. And there Ahad, Allah was saying, on that day his punishment will be like the punishment of no one else. And his wrapping up and tying up and caging will be like the caging and wrapping up and tying up of no one else. So here he says, no one will have control over him and the word Ahad here implies even Allah. He's not concerned that even Allah will ever have exercised his control over him. Notice that the word len refers to negative in the future. So will not have control. He's thinking in the future that he will remain independent. He's not concerned about the future. Now understand, the, the surah so far alluded to things in the past. وَوَالِدٍ وَمَا وَلَدٍ The installation of the city. Right? The creation of the human being into Allah is reference to the past. But now there's this attitude that is carefree about the future. Meaning the one who doesn't reflect on the past, doesn't develop proper concern on the future. And, the, and reflection on the past, what does it do for you? It prepares you for the future. That's the idea of learning lessons from history. So, يَقُولُ أَهْلَكْتُ مَالَ اللُّبَدَ So we're going from يَحْسَبُ to يَقُولُ يَحْسَبُ He assumes, he thinks nobody will have control. This is something going on in his head. But يَقُولُ He says, he says something. Which means his assumptions, when they get strong enough, and he gets arrogant enough, and full of himself enough, and obnoxious enough, he actually says it out loud. He says some things out loud. So what are, what are the manifestations of his arrogance? He says, أَهْلَكْتُ مَالَ اللُّبَدَ First of all, he thinks nobody will have control over him. This is, a, this is an illustration of power and strength. The second is an illustration of wealth. This person has a lot of money and there's a lot of ways in, this, in which this ayah has been interpreted and all of them fit together. First of all, he says, I have destroyed, literally destroyed, you know, completely wrecked enormous amounts of wealth. Lubad, lubad in Arabic comes from labd or libd, libda which is you know, something that's uh, liquid and sticky, and you can pile things on top like glue to stick things together. And lubad is used for a huge pile that is stuck together. So a pile of wealth that is not, that's immobile, right? So when he says, مَالَ lubada, He says, I have just destroyed enormous amounts of wealth. Which is kind of similar to the English expression, man, I blew a lot of money on that stereo system or whatever. <laughs> right? A lot of, blew a lot of money on those rims. Right, blowing up money. Ahlaktu malan. I destroyed wealth. It is a means by which an arrogance is illustrated. He doesn't even say anfaktu malan. I spent a lot of money. He says I blew a lot of money. Like I don't even care. I killed that. You know, I killed so much cash on this thing. I destroyed so much money in that thing. The way of the Arab saying that is, I don't even care what I do with my money. And it's his way of saying, you know, there are a few things going on here. One, he wants to tell people how much he spends. You know, he knows what he spent. And nobody cares. But he wants to make sure people know what he spends. This is directly connected to the previous surah. Remember when his money goes away, he feels he's humiliated? Right? فَقَدَرَ عَلَيْهِ رِزْقُهُ فَيَقُولُ رَبِّي أَهَانًا When Allah collects his risk and calculates, he says, my Lord has humiliated me. Why? Because his idea of prestige is showing off his wealth. Now he's literally showing off his wealth. He can't even hold it in his head. He says, يَقُولُ He says, Man, I've blown a lot of money. So, you know, he's outside with you in the parking lot, and you're just talking about, you know, one time is salah, you know how much I spent on this car? You know? He just feels the urge to tell you. He can't help himself. Right? He can't help himself. Man, that's a big house I bought. I got a really good deal, only two million. Right? And he wants to see the reaction on your face. Because he wants to hear you go, oh... Right? 
And people, people get a kick out of that. People get a kick out of people staring at them and looking at them. Why is it, you know, for a, a, a lot of people that are not mature in their thinking, and they think wealth or status, these sorts of things that symbolize wealth, will bring them status, what kinds of things do they do? They'll, for example, you know, uh, a lot of people will, will deck out their car, right? Uh, one, you'll get a really expensive nice car, which is, maybe there's nothing wrong with, but you get like spinner rims and you get all kinds of funny like add-ons. So when you pull over at the red light, somebody will look at your car and you can't look at your car when you're driving, you're inside, right? You can only look at other people. What are you looking at though? You're enjoying other people looking at you. That's all it's about, right? So the, the decor in your life is not about you as much as it is about what other people will say when they walk in and say, nice place, ah, mission accomplished, somebody said nice place, right? So this idea of showing off to others, which in Surah Al-Hadid is captured in the words, وَتَفَاخُرُمْ بَيْنَكُمْ But here this Arabic, arrogant person says, أَهْلَكْتُ مَالَ اللُّبَدَ Man, I've spent a lot of money. Oh my God, I can't, I don't know where else to spend money on. So he's showing this off. The other way this is in- interpreted is, that you know when the call is made to do infaq to, to spend for the orphan, to spend for the needy, to spend for a good cause and these are the causes in early Meccan Qur'an that we talk about when we talk about infaq fi sabilillah which was you know to gathering for, the, for baytul mal and for the struggle of the messenger والسلام, and the battles that's later on early infaq in Meccan surah what is, what is the Qur'an talking about? taking care of the orphan, right? the needy these are the things that are talked about more so now, when it comes to this kind of call, what does he say? Man, I've already blown all my money. <laughs> I've already destroyed my wealth. I don't have anything left. So before even the fundraiser begins, you know what does he come and say? Man, I spent so much on that extension of the house. You know how much it cost me? Like $40,000. Now, you know why he's saying that? Because, you know, he's, people know that he's wealthy, so when the fundraising begins, they might go to him and say, hey, what do you have to offer? So before they even get to come then, what's he gonna say? Man, I've spent a lot of money. So they don't even bother, they think, man, he spent so much money on that other thing, so he probably doesn't have anything left. So he's psychologically defending himself from having to say no. <laughs> when the time comes, he's just saying, ah, I blew all my money. That's how Amin Ahsan Islahi rahimahullah comments on this ayah in Tadabur al-Quran. Then another way, in which, in, if this... Uh, this uh, insan is referring to the, the most adamant of the kuffar against Islam. Some have interpreted this to mean that you know in the struggle against the Messenger ﷺ, they were also spending money in struggling against the Messenger ﷺ. And some say, this guy says, you should consider me the leader because I've spent the most in opposition of Muhammad ﷺ. Abu al-Ash referring to specifically. That I've spent the most so you should consider me the leader of this, this cause against the Messenger of Allah So, أَهْلَكْتُ مَالَ اللُّبَدَى And this is an interesting contrast with what the, the same human being, the same Al-Insan says in the previous surah. Here we find him saying, Man, I've blown my money. I threw my cash here, threw my cash there, destroyed my wealth. Right? I've got money to spare. What is he saying in the previous surah? يَقُولُ يَا لَيْتَنِي قَدَّمْتُ لِحَيَاتِي Oh, if only I had invested for my life. Put some investment where? In this world so I can enjoy it in the next. And now Allah, so He gave us the view of what's He gonna be saying in the future. But how did He get to that point? In this surah He told us what's He doing now with His money. And He's bragging about it too. He's bragging that I'm just blowing my money in every direction. And Allah has already given us in the previous surah a picture of what He is going to be saying because of this and in the, when He stands before Allah. He'll be saying, oh if only I had invested, subhanAllah. أَيَحْسَبُ أَلَّمْ يَرَهُ أَحَدٍ Now, لَنْ was of the future, right? 
He doesn't think anyone will, will have control over him. Then Allah says, does he assume that no one saw him? No one saw him is in the past. Lam yarahu lam forces the mudari' into the past tense. Did no one ever see him? Is that what he assumes? In other words, now Allah is asking him, if you're not willing to reflect on the legacy of your father and the legacy of legacies of the previous nations, right, of, that were mentioned in the previous surah, at least reflect on your own life. Do you think nobody saw what you've been doing all this time? Do you not know how Allah doesn't know how you acquired your wealth? You see, the Quraysh started thinking that they have this, you know, natural born right to the city and to the wealth and to prestige. This is in their blood. And Allah says, no, this city was, you know, wadin dhar'in. This was a valley with no cultivation. This was nothing. Allah produced by the dua of Ibrahim salam. Allah gave the city life. Allah provided its citizens risk, made it safe. You're not entitled to it. Haven't you looked in your own life of the things you've enjoyed because of these provisions Allah has given? Ayahsabu Allah Yarahu Ahad. Has he assumed that no one ever saw him? SubhanAllah. And now Allah Azza wa Jal mentions the, the very right after saying did nobody see him? He says, Didn't we give him eyes? Alam Najallahu Ainaim. Didn't we give him eyes? Meaning the one who gave you the ability to see, don't you think he saw you to begin with? Right? He gave you the ability to see. You don't think he saw you? The other thing is you've destroyed so much wealth. How much wealth are you willing to pay for your eyes? Right? How did you pay for your eyes? Didn't we give you the eyes? You know, you've got the camel, you've got the property, you've got this, you've got that. Fine. Who gave you the eyes? Alam Najallahu. Didn't we install for him the eyes? Both both eyes? Walisanan and a tongue. Now what did he say with his tongue? And just a few moments ago we read, Yaqulu, He used his tongue to say, Man, I've blown a lot of cash. I've spent a lot of wealth. That's what he used his tongue for. So Allah doesn't say just say walisanan, he adds washafatain and two lips to hold the tongue inside. According to the hadith of the Prophet wasallam, the, the, the lips are a means by which you control your tongue. The first thing was yahsabu, his assumption of arrogance. Nobody will have control over him. His assumption of nobody saw him in the past. But the arrogance manifested with the tongue, didn't it? And that was the worst crime. Which is why he's going to be crying on the Day of Judgment with that same tongue. So what did Allah say? وَلِسَانًا وَشَفَتَيْنَ SubhanAllah He gave him a tongue and two lips to hold that tongue inside. And these are two of the most remarkable creations if you think about them. What we see processes immediately in our mind. And the tongue even, you know, I'm thinking about saying something, I mean, think about a processor, right? It's got to go over here, get processed, and then those concepts have to be turned into words, into a grammatically coherent sentence, and then come out of my mouth, all within fractions of a second. All of this is happening. This in, incredible engineering, this, this mechanism is taking place constantly for us. No processor lag. You know your processor and your operating system, sometimes the camera freezes. Right? So you know, our eyes don't do that. Like, I'm still over there, I'm looking over here, but I still see this. Because the processor froze for a few seconds. That doesn't happen. <laughs> right? SubhanAllah, what a processor Allah put in here. Right? And the speakers get scratchy and you know, the, the sound doesn't come through or the file gets corrupt. SubhanAllah, Allah made this flawless system that works for years and years and years and no plug-in. No like, you know, another like, you know, system of battery that Allah Azza wa Jalla created. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, وَلِسَانًا وَشَفَتَيْنَ And finally we'll close with this ayah and discuss it in depth because it's a very deep ayah. That's the conclusion of this, this series of rhetorical questions that Allah asks. And that is, وَهَدَيْنَاهُنَّ جَدَيْنَ 
that we guided him to two elevated paths. Paths that lead to elevation, paths that are heading up mountains. Literally, that's what Najd is, a wide path that is clear of cultivation, that is heading up mountains. And we'll talk about the implications of that, inshaAllah ta'ala, after the salah. Barakallahu li wa lakum fil Qur'anil Hakim wa nafa'ni wa iyaakum bil ayat wa zikril hakim. To download more lectures, learn more about our project, and to help support it, visit www.bayyina.com slash dream. That's B-A-Y-Y-I-N-A-H slash dream. You are free to share these recordings with family and friends. Thank you and Jazakumullah Khairan for helping us make our dream a reality. Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah, thumma amma ba'd. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. We're continuing with the 10th ayah of Surah Al-Balad, وَهَدَيْنَاهُ النَّجْدَيْنَ First and foremost, inshallah, we, let's look at a hadith uh, that is quoted in the tafsir of this surah by Al-Biqa'i rahimahullah. يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسِ هَلِمُوا إِلَىٰ رَبِّكُمْ فَإِنَّمَا قَلَّ وَكَفَىٰ خَيْرٌ مِمَّا كَثُرَ وَأَلْهَىٰ يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسِ إِنَّمَا هُمَا نَجْدَانِ نَجْدُ خَيْرٍ وَنَجْدُ شَرٍ فَمَا جَعَلَ النَّجْدَ الشَّرِّ أَحَبَّ إِلَيْكُمْ مِنْ نَجْدِ الْخَيْرِ Beautiful hadith of the Prophet ﷺ Rush towards your Lord people Because certainly that which is little and enough is better than which is in plenty But that deludes you and deceives you and distracts you People listen up, no doubt there are only two paths, the path of good or the, path, the high path leading to good and the high path leading to evil. Then what has made the evil path more beloved to you or the path of filled with harm more beloved to you than the path leading to good? Now in that context, inshallah ta'ala, let's look at the language of the ayah, وَهَدَيْنَهُ najdain. The word hada in Arabic is to guide someone. And by Allah saying, Allah has guided us to two paths, the, again, the majority tafsir of the ayah, not the unanimous, but majority tafsir of the ayah is this is the path of good and evil. This has been illustrated in other places in the Quran. For example, when Allah Azza wa Jal says, "Qad al-rushdu min al you know, the, the the straight or the right way has been clearly identified from the wrong one. Or, for example, we're going to be reading later on in the same juz of the Quran, "Fa'alhamaha fujuraha wa taqwaha." So there's just two implications. What the, what the implication here is that Allah guided along two paths or guided the, we guided him uh, uh, to two paths means we clearly showed him the right and the wrong. It's not like, you know, and by the way, Meccan Qur'an, early Qur'an talks a lot about universal goods. Things that, you know, for example, we're going to read in this surah and the previous one also we read about taking care of the orphan. Which society has a problem with that or sees that that's an evil? Everybody knows that's a good thing. Right, or taking, giving to the needy, giving to the poor, charity, rights of neighbor, etc., etc. These are the sorts of things that are talked about in early Meccan Quran, a universal sense of morality. So before we talk about the finer details of the deen in the da'wah of the Messenger wasallam, very few, little to nothing of Sharia as we know it is mentioned in Meccan Quran, very few things. On one or two occasions there's mention of uh, foods that are permissible. Now, on one occasion specifically is mention of riba, right? But outside of that, pretty much you have these, these general moral principles that anybody can relate to, that anybody can relate with, even the mushrikun of the Arabs who did not have any exposure to revelation before. They're not like the people of the book that know about a book and know about law and you know, divine law and commandments. They have no idea. They have no background in these things. 
but even they could relate to certain things as being good and evil. And those are the things that are highlighted in Meccan Quran, this call to universal ethics and goodness. Okay? Now with that in mind, it's, it, and this is actually something Allah pre-programmed inside the human being. This is in our fitrah. So killing is wrong is something that, that's part of human nature. Right? And this actually, um, this is a subject in social psychology and in other areas of psychology, the subject matter of morality. Philosophers try to deal with this subject of right and wrong, right? what is right and what is wrong, by means of rationality. But psychologists, interestingly, try to study the, the subject matter of right and wrong. How do human beings develop this, not from a philosophical point of view, but from maybe their environment or their genetics and things like that. And there's some really interesting findings that, you know, that we've known all along, that these are pre-programmed inside of us. right? There's actually now a, a good amount of evidence that, for example, being averse to lying, for instance, is one evil that every society says lying is bad, pretty much. There's no society that says, hey, you're a liar, we love you. That doesn't happen, right? So lying is looked at as an almost across the board universal wrong. And studies have shown basically that when somebody engages in a lie, that this is, these are studies done in social psychology, when somebody engages in a lie for the first time, not like a professional liar like a politician, or a professional liar like an actor, right? But we're talking about a liar who's not usually lying. When they lie for the first time, you know what happens? They, you know, blood pressure increases, the hair on the skin rises, the pitch of the voice goes up, out of their control. But these are physiological things. But lying is not a physiological act. You're not putting your hand on a fire or touching ice or something like that. It's a psychological thing. It's all in your head. So why is something abstract leading to these physical consequences? And basically, I asked my professor this when I was studying social psychology. You know what he told me? He told me the human being wasn't programmed to lie as best we can say. Right? That's, that's what my agnos, non-Muslim professor tells me about lying. Human beings are not programmed to lie. And what do we know about the fitrah? That it inclines towards the truth. Right? So Allah showed the two paths. وَهَدَيْنَاهُ النَّجْدَيْنَ the, the, the thing in the language here, a couple of things. Just like in the Fatiha, there's no preposition. We find in the Fatiha, اِهْدِنَا الصِّرَاطِ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ We don't find اِهْدِنَا إِلَى أَوْ اِهْدِنَا لِلصِّرَاطِ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ There's no إِلَى, there's no لَام, there's no preposition. Other places in the Qur'an with the verb of guidance, هَدَى, there is a preposition. وَيَهْدِيهِمْ إِلَى صِرَاطِ الْعَزِيزِ الْحَمِيدِ يَهْدِي إِلَى الرُّشْدِ إِلَى is used أَلْحَمْدُلِلَّهِ الَّذِي هَدَانَا لِي هَذَا Prepositions are used But here there's no preposition وَهَدَيْنَاهُ There's no إِلَنْ نَجْدَيْن or لِنْ نَجْدَيْن But there's just straight نَجْدَيْن Now the removal of prepositions does something linguistically It actually uh, makes this, the phrase more comprehensive and carry more meaning So one meaning of course is we guided him to the word to I'm using in translation two pathways two pathways. But it actually also at the same time means we guided him along two pathways. And that's very important. The path of good, when somebody takes that path, you know what Allah does? Allah facilitates that path for them and guides them along that path. And when somebody decides to take the path of evil, what does Allah do for him? وَيَمُدُّهُمْ فِي تُغْيَانِهِمْ يَعْمَهُونَ He tells us himself. We extend for them in their rebellion so they can go further blind. They can keep going further in their blindness. So Allah will not just guide you to it, but also guide you along it. You've directed your, you've chosen your career, Allah will now facilitate it for you and get you enhanced in your career, whether it's good or evil. So Fir'aun, you want to be bad? Let's see how bad you can get. Open that door for him, right? So this is, this is really the concept that's been illustrated here. وَهَدَيْنَاهُ النَّجْدَيْنَ Now a little bit about the word najd. It means a mountain that has no vegetation or trees, it's bare rock. 
Okay? And in it there's a clear path that is leading up. Now Najdain is two paths. Right? So in the vision, the image that's presented in the ayah is of a person at the foot of a hill and in front of him there's these two, rain, these two paths that are leading right and left. Right? There are two paths. And Allah has clearly shown this path leads to this and this path leads to that. Now the, the thing to understand is these two paths are right in front of you, they're clear, they're heading, they're both, do they involve, uh, climbing upwards, does it involve labor anyway? Right? Whether you go up the right way or the, right, the left way, it still involves labor. And that's already been taught to us in this surah before when Allah said, لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي كَبَد Right? When the human being is created in toil. So now that lesson is being reinforced with a new image. Here's the next thing that's really important to note about this ayah. The word najid is the general word for mountain. And I'm going to add some things to help you understand the image that's coming. One of these ranges is easy going up, but as you go further up, there's difficulty. And the other range is very difficult in the beginning, but once you get a certain path, it becomes easy. So one is easy in the beginning, and one is hard in the beginning. One is hard at the end, and one is easy at the end. So now you've got these two choices. Right? You want easy in the beginning, uh, or you want hard in the beginning. Right? And the human being, what does he love to get immediately? Ease in the beginning. Right? We, we love things that come quickly. We don't, we, we wanna, for, as for problems that are concerned, we say we'll deal with it later. Let me just get what I want right now, right? So now Allah says, فلق, you know, وَهَدَيْنَهُ النَّجْدَيْنِ But then He says, فَلَقْتَحَمَا الْعَقَبَةِ Al-Aqaba is a really interesting word. It is also a word used for a path. It is also a word used for a path heading up a mountain range. So it's almost synonymous with the word najd. Except the word aqaba means a path that is very difficult to climb. It's very difficult to climb. So first Allah showed us two paths. But then he told us one of these paths isn't just najd, it's also aqaba. It's very difficult and high and it's, you know, it takes a lot of struggle to get through this path. So he says, فَلَقْتَحَمَ الْعَقَبَةِ Then he didn't jump right into and get involved in al-aqaba. Al-aqaba. Now the word iqtiham, let's look at one word at a time. Iqtahama. Iqtiham in Arabic is to jump into something without giving it any thought. And put yourself in a, in a task that will involve a lot, a lot, a lot of work. But you, once you jumped in, you jumped in. Right? You ever been involved in a task that you know, you say, yeah, I can do this. Right? Or putting some furniture together or something. I'm thinking of putting, putting furniture together because I just moved, right? Oh yeah, I could do this. Right? You get involved <laughs> and then it gets difficult. And then you realize that maybe this wasn't such a good idea in the middle of it, right? So there's, you, you dive right in without much thought. And then you realize this is actually a lot of work and it's exhausting, right? This is iqtiham. Allah says the human being didn't jump right away, you know, so enthusiastically into this heavy cliff. Oh, I can handle it. He didn't do that, right? But now the way he says this is in the beginning, the first word in the ayah is la, fala. Then, after he showed him these two paths, then he did not, and the word for not, the negation is la. But for the past tense in the Arabic language, which the word iqtahama is, it's past tense, we don't use la, we use ma. Maqtahama al-aqaba. That's what we were expecting. Okay, the, the expected grammatical term here was not la, it was ma. La yaqtahimu. Okay. Lam yaqtahim. Fine. But la iqtahama, it doesn't come together normally. And so what this illustrates is a linguistic, what you, I don't want to call it problem, but almost a riddle. 
There are depths and new layers of meaning that are captured by just one change of a word. One implication of this, La is used for something that necessitates, that has ta'addud in it. Meaning there are multiple things that are being negated. But we know iqtahama is just one thing. He didn't jump right in, is one act. But the word aqaba, are there multiple things involved in al-aqaba? We'll find later on, fakku raqabatin, aw it'amun fi yawmin dhi masghabatin, yatiman dha maqraba, aw miskinan dha matraba, thumma kana min alladhina amanu, wa tawasaw bil sabr, wa tawasaw bil marhama. That entire passage that is coming is all an explanation of al-aqaba. So according to some mufassirun, because there is ta'addu, there are multiple things mentioned here, that's why la is there. So la will prepare the listener that this path had multiple stops. It had multiple stops, because La illustrates something that has multiple components, that, that's being negated. So La will prepare you for these multiple items that are coming, it's not just one thing. That's one thing. The other thing with La is, it's uh, what's called a dua Meaning, for example, in, in Zamakhshari he says that Fala here could also be in the meaning of Hala. Why didn't he? Why didn't he just go up the, the tougher path? Why didn't he do so? Why didn't he just jump right in? Meaning, did we not give him enough ability? Hadn't we given him eyes, two eyes, a tongue, right? Hadn't we guided him clearly to both paths and what one leads to and what the other leads to? He had everything he needed to get on this path, so how come he didn't? So, fala is actually in the middle, in the meaning of limadha. Limadha lam yaqtahim al-aqaba. How come he didn't just climb up that path? What was missing? So it's almost as though Allah Azza wa Jal is complaining about the human being who didn't jump right in. And by doing so, what is He asking all of us to do? He's asking us, He's putting a challenge on us to jump right in. To actually engage in this struggle and engage in that climbing of the mount. So, فَلَقْتَحَمْ الْعَقَبَةِ Now, here, by the way, Al-Biqa'i also among other Mufassirun comment, هِيَ طَرِيقُ nijat That this path is the path to salvation. It is the path to save oneself. This path will be talked about in brief here, but in full bloom. There's some language at the end of this surah that gives you some clue about this salvation, some idea of what you will see when you start reaching the top of this path, but the full picture will be given in Surah Al-Asr. So the same wording is used. Here we'll find وَتَوَاصَوْ بِالصَّبْرُ وَتَوَاصَوْ بِالْمَرْحَمَةِ There you'll find the complete picture. إِلَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ وَتَوَاصَوْ بِالْحَقِّ وَتَوَاصَوْ بِالصَّبْرُ We'll talk about that when we get to Surah Al-Asr, inshaAllah. Now Ibn Uyayna writes about the next ayah, وَمَا أَضْرَاكَ مَلْعَقَبَ In the Qur'an we find two phrases, وَمَا أَضْرَاكَ and also وَمَا يُدْرِيكَ وَمَا يُدْرِيكَ يُدْرِيكَ is the present tense form, مَا أَضْرَاكَ would mean what would give you any clue. What, would, you know, what, would, what can you look around you and decipher from and delude, you know, conclude from, deduce from, that will give you an idea of what al-aqaba, that high cliff, what, what, what that really means, what that really is. Now the way Allah says that is in the past tense. What would have given you an idea? But sometimes he says, what will give you an idea? What will give you an idea? Now whenever he uses the present tense, which also includes the future tense, he never answers the question. When he uses, what will tell you, he won't tell you. What could have told you, then he'll give you the answer. So whenever you find adraka, you find more information. When you find yudrika, it is a kind of question, the answer of which you're not gonna know. Allah will not open that door to you. For example, when is the hour coming? Allah will say, what will give you a clue when it's coming? He won't, he won't, he won't answer it. Right? وَمَا يُدْرِيكَ لَعَلَّهُ يَزَّكَّ We read before. What will give you any clue that perhaps he wants to purify himself? That, that human being wants to purify himself. Can anything give us an idea of what's going on inside the heart of another human being? 
Nothing. All we see are actions. We don't see the intentions of those actions. We assume sincerity, but we don't know sincerity, right? We will never know. So yudrika, because we're not going to know. But adraka, Allah will teach. Allah will tell you what you could do. To, to, what could you do to find out what this mount is? And so it's a mercy of Allah that the word adraka is used. What would give you a clue? Now we're hoping for an answer. Because if we didn't know what this cliff is, we would never jump in and climb because we don't even know what that path is, right? So let's see, what are, the, what are the things that Allah talks about that are part of this path? The first thing, فَكُّ رَقَبَةٍ Ikrama says, actually he has the only unique opinion about this ayah. He says, the, the, the literal meaning by the way is rescuing someone from slavery. Rescuing someone from slavery. That's fakuraqaba. That's what the meaning of the, the expression is. Ikrama says it is to free yourself from the slavery of sins by making tawbah. That's what his opinion is on this ayah. That actually the first thing to climb is your, your own nafs. And to, to conquer yourself by means of tawbah. But let's look at the majority tafsir of the ayah inshallah ta'ala. In Arabic there are two words for rescuing. There's anqadha. Anqadha with a dhal at the end. Right? For example, afatunqidu man finnar in the Quran. And then there is fakka, this, this word that we find in this ayah. This word is used when you're trying to rescue a slave or somebody out of prison. But anqadha is used when you're trying to rescue someone from a fire or from some kind of danger, you pull them out of the way. So rescuing from bondage or slavery or prison and then rescuing from danger. Two different kinds of words are used in the Quran. Here of course we find the word for slavery. So the first act is freeing the slave. Now the word for slavery is raqaba, which literally means the back of the neck. The back of the neck. Now, you know, unuq is the neck. And there are other words to illustrate the neck also in the Quran. But specifically raqaba is used for the back of the neck, illustrating that there's a chain around the neck of the person. And the link to it is where? In the back. And now, if the link was in the front, the master pulls it and you pull forward. But if the link is in the back and the master pulls it, what happens? You get choked. You get choked. You don't get choked when you get pulled forward, but you get choked when you get pulled back. So it's actually illustrating the pain of being a slave. The pain and the, the, the slavery is mentioned in two ways in, in Islamic literature. One is literal slavery, the other is the slavery of a debt. That you, your necks are tied in debt. That's also a chokehold on you, right? So fakku raqabatin, subhanAllah. Other, used, other words used in the Qur'an for the neck are wateen, raqaba, jeed, and unuq. Um, these words inshallah we'll discuss when we get to them. The other thing to note here is, the first word is not used in verbal form. You know, the word fakku in Arabic, fa, kaf, kaf, the root origin. This word actually being used in the nominal mustar form implies you are committed to it. Meaning the first mount to climb was not one time you freed a slave, one time you did this good thing, you're committed to that as a cause. So even in Meccan Qur'an we find the cause of freeing slaves. You know how people talk about why does, Quran, why does Islam endorse slavery? Right? And uh, how that discussion is taken in every direction. The Meccan Qur'an from the very beginning is saying you want to become, you want to climb that, that right path, what's the first act? Become committed to freeing the slave. Become committed to it. In Surah An-Nur, inshaAllah, one day when we get to that surah, we'll talk about how Islam systematically and the Qur'an systematically abolished the institution of uh, slavery. Now, or in addition, feeding. Now, by the way, in the previous surah, we read something very interesting. 
We read about a person, كَلَّا بَلَّا تُكْرِمُونَ الْيَتِيمُ وَلَا تَحَابُونَ عَلَى طَعَامِ الْمِسْكِينَ وَتَأْكُلُونَ التُّرَاثِ They're very selfish people. Right? And what's the first act of climbing the mountain? You have to become what? Selfless. So the previous surah illustrated why isn't it that you'd climbed up? Didn't you already do an iqtahama past tense? You haven't done so. What's the proof that you haven't done so? Has the proof already been given? It's given in the previous surah. And now you're being told the exact opposite. Freeing the slave and it'amun fi not just it'am, not just giving. And by the way, they don't even give. They eat themselves. You eat the, the, the wealth that comes to you from the inherited, from monies you didn't earn. You love to eat it. But if you love to eat it, you should have a, more of a love of giving others to eat. Giving to, giving to eat. But then giving to eat when? Not just giving to eat. That's, even that's not enough. In a day that is quantified or identified with this term, masghaba. In Arabic, in the Qur'an specifically for hunger, there are four terms that are used. Masghaba, ju' makhmasa, and khasasa. These are four words that are used in the Qur'an for hunger. Specifically, the one that is used here is masghaba. Asghaba al-qawmu, in Arabic expression which comes from this word, means when a nation is hungry because of famine. So masghaba means widespread hunger. Hunger that isn't just limited to the one you're trying to feed, but everyone is going hungry. Everyone is going hungry. Meaning, in, in our expression we would say, bad economic times. So Allah says, this mountain to climb, why is it so tough in the beginning? You have to feed and be committed to feeding, because again, there is no, there's not a verbal form. أو, uh, أو في يوم, no. أو في يوم, no. أو في يوم. is the mustard, the infinitive form implies it's a timeless commitment. You're committed to the act of feeding, especially in bad economic times. In a day that is known, is possessed by this overwhelming hunger that's coming to everybody. Meaning when you're reluctant to give, it's because you yourself are hungry. But Allah is saying, if you want to climb this mount, you have to become a true humanitarian. In the sense that you're even giving preference over yourself in giving to the other. SubhanAllah, Allah has not talked in this surah yet about iman. He's not talked about Iman, he's not talked about Akhirah so much. He hasn't talked about this stuff. What's he talked about? These ethics and these morals of becoming selfless as a person. You're concerned about the slave. And by the way, some of the good people of Makkah, even before Islam, were they not concerned about some of these things? This is a historical fact, right? So these are universal, ethical, humanitarian concerns that are being given precedence in this, in this context. You know why? One of the benefits of that, the previous surah told us, what did kufr lead to? What did their tughyan lead to? فَأَكْثَرُوا فِيهَا الْفَسَادِ In the cities, they caused corruption. فِيهَا referring to the cities. They caused corruption in the cities. What is corruption in the cities? It's the slavery. It is the oppression of the weak. It is not giving to the poor. This is oppression. So now in this surah, it is a response. What's already understood, they didn't rebel against Allah. Because had they rebelled against Allah, there would have been fasad. And what's the counter to that fasad? What is being mentioned in this surah? So, يَتِيمًا ذَا مَقْرَبَةً Previous surah said, كَلَّا بَلَّا تُكْرِمُونَ الْيَتِيمِ Yatim came up again. It's like a review of the previous lesson. So he says, يَتِيمًا ذَا مَقْرَبَ Feeding the orphan, the feeding of an orphan, that is, that possesses closeness. And the word maqraba is interesting because it's from ظرف مَكَان. Now, ذَا الْقُرْبَ or ذَا الْقُرْب even of closeness, meaning the orphan that is close relative to you. But ذَا مَقْرَبَ doesn't just mean the close relative to you, means the one who is in close proximity to you. 
There are orphans all around your neighborhood. What about them too? So it captures two things. The orphan in your family that's needy, and the orphan that's in your community. What this calls for from the believer is, first of all, you know what happens? You have close relations with your brother. Because you grew up together and you're, you know, you're, you're very close. But then your brother lives in a different city, you live in a different city. Right? You get a little bit farther apart. And he has children, and he sends you pictures of those children. You know, you're attached to them, you love them, but not like you love your brother. Because you, you actually had a meaningful connection. You see those kids once in a while, etc. Right? So now what happens is, when Allah, that brother passes away and those children are orphans, your motivation, you think about them, but not so much. Not so much. Because you're more concerned, you were more concerned about your brother than you are about those children. There's a, there's a little bit of a distance between you and them, right? And even actually in our families what happens is your niece and nephew, they come up to you, come to your home and they're fighting with your kids. They're like, oh my God, they're coming, they're coming again next week, right? So you have this idea of cousins being a nuisance, right? So what happens is, even in the family when there's some yatim, then people tend to overlook. There's a possibility of them overlooking. So Allah calls for that first. Not just yatiman, la maqraba. The one in close proximity, meaning close in your family, and also close in your neighborhood. So we have to know the yatama, the aytam in our communities. This is actually a very important task of the Muslim. And this is something that Allah is saying that even the moral kafir should be aware of. Even he can relate to this. Because right now the appeal, the discussion is to al-insan. Not to al-ladheena amanu. This is universal. Allah is talking to human beings in general here. SubhanAllah. They should be concerned. أَوْ مِسْكِينًا ذَا matraba. Or, the word miskin comes from maskana. It's used in many places in the Qur'an. It's been defined in a, a couple of different ways. For example, Imam Raghib al-Asfahani says, someone who barely has life essentials to survive. Meaning they have no assets, they have no savings, perhaps they don't even have a home, some linguists argue. But they're somehow surviving anyway. Like if you saw them, you would say, how are you surviving? That's a miskin. Okay? So Allah says miskinan, but then He adds, ذَا matraba. The, 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 this needy person, this barely surviving person that is, no, that is associated, possessing dust and matraba meme masdari, turab, not even that turab, that matraba the meme here is called meme masdariya what it does is, it's completely covered in, in dust and it's, it captures a few things for us number one, he's homeless, because if he was at home he wouldn't be overwhelmed with dust number two, he's going around in search of food so when you go around, what happens to you? you get covered in dust Number three, his bed is dust. Because when your bed is dust, when you sleep on dust, you are now, when you get up, you're covered in dust. Right? So, and, and he's dirty and he's bankrupt. All of these implications are captured when we see, oh, miskin and the matraba. The previous surah told us how bad these people are. They don't climb that mount. And how did he say it? وَلَا تَحَابُّونَ عَلَى طَعَامِ الْمِسْكِينَ Forget feeding him. You don't even encourage anybody else to feed him. You don't even do that. So that was actually illustrated in the previous surah and it's being re- responded to again here. Then Allah says, ثُمَّ كَانَ مِنَ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا Thereafter, He became from those who had believed. Iman is mentioned all the way at the end here. What was mentioned before? The freeing of a slave, right? فَكُرَقَبَةٍ Giving, when a day that, uh, that's difficult, giving to who? The orphan and the needy that's covered in dust. Humanitarian causes. So Allah is saying, those of you that see something wrong in society, this is a very profound lesson of the, I don't want to say philosophy, but the wisdom of the Qur'an. Profound lesson. Those that saw problems in society before them, 
and they could relate to these problems, and were looking for a solution to these problems, there's only one real solution. Everything else is patchwork. You know, the, you, know uh, you have organizations, may Allah reward them, that are trying to feed the needy and the poor and the hungry, etc. Right? And you know, they, they say, this year we fed 10,000 orphans. And the next year they say, we increased our activities, this year we got to feed 20,000. Or we got to put these many more children. So they're showing you this chart where their progress has gone up, right? But if you compare that progress with the level of hunger, in, did hunger increase in the world? What will you see? Your, your progress is this way, but the progress of the problem is this way. Right? So you made a little prob- progress in helping, but the problem is exponentially faster in its growth. So the people who work in humanitarian causes very quickly realize that it's a hopeless cause. They become very, very you know, disheartened. They're just working, 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 but they become hope. Man, there's no hope. Human beings are just... There's no, there's no helping this. It's just endless. It's just endless, right? So what happens is, a lot of these charities and these organizations, what they do is, they don't want to tell you how big the problem is. They say, support one orphan, one dollar a day. Or, you know, because they don't want you to see the bigger picture. Because if you see the bigger picture, what's going to happen to you? Man, this is, forget it. It's too overwhelming. But then, you know, these are the problems of humanity. That are, this is facade, basically, in humanity that's always been there. The previous surah told us what was the root of that facade. It was, الَّذِينَ طَغَوْ فِي الْبِلَادِ They rebelled. Rebelled against who? Against Allah, and thereby caused corruption. So how do you get rid of the corruption? You can try to help the corruption. What's the root that will get rid of the corruption altogether? That is returning back to iman in Allah. So the person has these concerns, but what's that final concern that will lead them away? You see, this is why Allah Azza wa Jal, for example, says about the believers. He says, لَيَخْتَخْلِفَنَّهُمْ فِي الْأَرْضِ وَلَيُمَكِّنَنَّهُمْ مِنْ بَعْدِ خَوْفِهِمْ أَمْنًا Right? They, that He will establish them in the earth, and He will replace for them. And this is Allah's promise to those who believe. He will replace for them after their time of fear, a time of peace and safety. What does iman bring? It brings amn. What is amn? Safety. And you know the surah began by swearing by this city. What's the other attribute of this city? وَهَاذَ الْبَلَدِ amin. Iman and amn are directly connected to each other. So the real, so you turn to Allah and Allah will send barakat from the sky and Allah will by means of His, His revealed justice and His revelation create a society in which these problems are properly dealt with. Now look, historically speaking, when the society of Iman was established, was it not the case that the hungry and the poor and the yatim and the maqraba and the miskin and the matraba were taken care of? Think about the rule of Umar radiallahu anhu. Was, where did that come from, that solution? What political theory or, or you know, you know, constitution brought that out? What was the root source of that entire situation? That was iman. That was iman. So at the end of this, thumma, thereafter, what did he become? What was the conclusion? Kana minalladina amanu. He became from those who had actually believed. He came to Iman. And then, وَتَوَاصَوْ sabr. And then after they became from those who believed, he became from those who believed, then they, see, Kana was singular. Kana was singular. It's not Kanu. Kanu would have been, they became from those who believed. But it says, Kana مِنَ الَّذِينَ amanu. He became. He was now from one, the one who believed. But then immediately there's a switch to the plural, وَتَوَاصَوْ sabr. 
It's not وَتَوَاصَى بِالصَّبْرِ Tawasa would have been singular. Tawasa, they enjoined each other. Meaning, when you become a person of iman, necessarily you join in the ranks of other believers. You are not in this struggle to help humanity alone. Now you are part of a larger struggle, a communal struggle of believers. This is what's happened to you. By the way, the previous surah hinted towards it, even in Jannah, فَدْخُلِي Fi'ibadi, enter in the company of my slaves. Even the work of this deen is in the company of slaves. Tawasal, they encourage each other. The word wasiya is to leave a will or a legacy, right? Tawasi is to advise and to motivate and to encourage and to counsel one another. To advise, motivate, encourage, and counsel one another. So now what's happening is these they've become believers, but the situation still looks hopeless. So what do they have to do? They have to counsel each other. They have to advise each other. They have to keep each other motivated. Motivated to be what? Bisabr. Bisabr. Bisabr is understood in two ways here. By the way, what does sabr mean? It means patience, commitment, consistency, and constancy. Four things at least, okay? That are in English that are not captured in one word. In Arabic says sabr, but in English we have to understand four distinct attributes of sabr. Those are patience, Right, that's the most common translation. Consistency, meaning you're doing something but you're doing it consistently, that's sabr. Okay? Then constancy, meaning no matter if it's hard or difficult, you are constant in your commit and, and commitment finally. So you're constant and you're committed to whatever that causes. So they enjoined on each other and they did whatever they could to encourage and counsel each other to remain constant. To remain constant. The other thing is bis sabr could be hal al-fi'l. In other words, what it could be, it is with commitment that they keep counseling each other. So once again, in simple language, I'll say two things. They counsel each other to, commit, to patience and perseverance and commitment. And it is with commitment and, and consistency that they continuously counsel each, each other. These are the two implications of وَتَوَاصَوْ sabr. Why a sabr? Because this task of climbing this hill is difficult, isn't it? That's already captured in the word Al-Aqaba. So you might start losing hope. So there has to be someone else that says, Come on, come on, you can do this. A little more to go. Come on, we can handle this. We'll help each other. This is Tawasi bis sabr Now, in the, in the passage that's the context of the ayat, let's look at one more thing. The things that we were told that are the uphill climb among the humanitarian causes. Why is it that the kuffar were not inclined to do so? Because they were greedy. They didn't have patience to, you know, to, they didn't have the self-restraint to not take the wealth for themselves. These were their problems. So what's the first thing they have to be told? You have to be patient. And part of patience is, you restrain the, the desires of yourself for the sake of another. It takes sabr. So they, he becomes one of sabr really after he has iman. Then وَتَوَاصَوْ marhama. Beautiful word. The word marhama doesn't just mean mercy, that is the word rahmah. Rahmah means mercy. They enjoined each other, encouraged each other, and counseled each other for the sake of you know, universal mercy. Marhama means mercy that goes in every direction. Meem Masdari makes it powerful. Mercy for everyone and everything. So what is the ultimate mercy in this surah? It is iman, number one. That is the ultimate mercy. And if you have that mercy, now you'll have concern for humanity. And I want to tie these two things together inshallah ta'ala. The decent human being that is listening to this call for human concern is concerned about the welfare of other people. Isn't that the case? What's the ultimate welfare for another human being? You fed him today and tomorrow and took care of him. But what if he still ended up in the hellfire? What if he became from Ashabul Mash'ama that are being mentioned at the end of the surah? That's not mercy enough. 
What is real mercy? You take care of their needs today, and you take care of their needs for tomorrow. That day will, where some of them will be saying, Ya laytani qaddamtu li hayati, you feed them for that day too. You give them the food they will need to survive then also. So that is marhama. Real, it's not just immediate mercy, it's this profound universal mercy that they encourage each other to. Ula'ika ashabul maymana. Those are in fact the people on the far, well off to the right. Ashab al-Yameen to the right. Al-Maymana far to the right. Meaning they're safe from the center and going tipping the other way. They're really out, you know, and, and, and safe on the right path. SubhanAllah. May Allah make us from Ashab al-Maymana. A, a, a beautiful contrast between this and the previous surah. In the previous surah we found, وَجِئَ يَوْمَ إِذِنْ بِجَهَنَّمْ يَوْمَ إِذِنْ يَتَذَكَّرُ الْإِنسَانُ وَأَنَّ لَهُ الذِّكْرَى يَقُولُ يَا لَيْتَنِي قَدَّمْتُ لِحَيَاتِي فَيَوْمَ إِذِنْ لَا يُعَذِّبُ عَذَابَهُ أَحَدٌ وَلَا يُثِقُ وَثَاقَهُ أَحَدٌ And then, يَا أَيَّتُهَا النَّفْسُ الْمُطْمَئِنَّ Meaning the people of hellfire were mentioned first, and the people of paradise are mentioned Second, in this surah what happens? The reverse. The people of hellfire are mentioned second, but the people of paradise are mentioned first. There's a reversal. Similarly, in the previous surah, we found in this surah rather, we found the yatim first and the miskeen second. Yatim first and miskeen second. In the previous surah, we found miskeen first and yatim second. So there's this, you know, uh, flipping of sequences between this surah and the next. Also, the end of that surah, the end of that surah was jannah, and the end of this surah is nar, is hellfire, as we will see. Okay. So, وَالَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا بِآيَاتِنَا هُمْ أَصْحَابُ الْمَشْأَمَةِ And those who disbelieved in our miraculous signs, disbelieved in revelation. There was no discussion of revelation in the whole surah. Most of the surah was talking about al-aqaba, which was humanitarian work, and then just little mention of iman. But then the problem, the root problem of all of this is what? Kufr bi-ayatillah. Disbelief in the miraculous signs of Allah. What are the ayat of Allah? The Quran. Kufr in iman. Kufr in the Quran means kufr in the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So actually, now we are getting the definition of iman in the previous surah. You know, when you think of iman, the first thing that comes to mind is iman in Allah. Iman in Allah. But this surah is highlighting another iman. Iman in the revelations of Allah. Iman in the revelations of Allah. Because the revelation of Allah is real guidance to solving the problems of humanity. That najdain, right? That guidance. So those who disbelieve in this guidance, they are in kufr. They will fall, they will continue to have facade in the land. So وَالَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا ayatina. Those who disbelieved in our miraculous signs. I, don't, I commonly don't translate ayah as verse. And I don't translate it as verse because it has nothing to do with verse. The word verse in English literature is used either for poetry or it's used in the biblical context. Verses of the Bible or verses of poetry or verses of a song. The Quran emphatically declares that it has nothing to do with poetry. It's very strong in saying, وَمَا عَلَّمْنَاهُ الشِّعْرَ وَمَا هُوَ بِقَوْلِ It's very strong in saying that. So I don't want an English listener to have even the most subtle hint in their mind that it has something to do with verse, as in poetry. The second thing the Quran you know, claims against, you know, uh, is that, you know, the claim made against the Qur'an was that it's plagiarized from the Bible. So the last thing you want people to think about when we're thinking about Qur'an is what? The Bible. Well, what comes to mind when you hear the word verse? So, you know, verses of the Bible. That's what a biblical connotation comes to mind. So when we're translating, not only do we have to be careful about the words, but the messages those words send to the audience. Right? And what connotations they have. The word ayah in the Qur'an is two things. It's a sign and it's a miracle. 
two things. So I like the translation miraculous sign, wallahu a'lam. It's used in the sense of the miraculous birth of Isa alayhi salam or the staff turning into a, a python, etc. Ayah. That's an ayah. Okay? Revelation is called ayah. Something that points to the oneness of Allah is also called an ayah. So the creations of Allah are also called ayat because they point to the oneness of Allah when you reflect on them. So those who disbelieved in our miraculous signs, bi ayatina, hum ashabul mash'ama, those are the people associated with the curse. Al mash'ama, the overwhelming curse. A shu'um in Arabic is to be, to be vile, to be disgusted. You know, to, to other people are disgusted with you and you are a source of curse, people stay away from you. Also the word mash'ama also means the left side. Because the Arabs considered the left side a cursed side. And that's something continued in the tradition of Islam. And for example, in Tahara, etc., we use the left. But in good things, we use the right hand. And this is the sunnah of the Messenger. One last comment about this kafaru bi ayatina before we go further. What are the ayat of Allah? There are two kinds. There are two kinds, essentially. There's revelation and there is creation. The revelation is Quran. And the creation is all of the creation. Now when we talked about the, the, the disbelief being in the revelations of Allah, meaning the Qur'an. But there's also kufr in the other ayat of Allah. What's the other ayat of Allah? The human being and all the other creation. Speaking of these ayat, Allah says, سَنُرِيهِمْ آيَاتِنَا فِي الْآفَاقِ وَفِي أَنفُسِهِمْ حَتَّى يَتَبَيَّنَ لَهُمْ أَنَّهُ الْحَقِّ We will show them our miraculous signs in the horizons and even inside of themselves until they are actual, it is absolutely clear to them that that is the truth, that this is the truth. So there are miraculous signs inside of us if we reflect. And there are miraculous signs outside of us if we reflect. And then there are miraculous signs inside the revelation of Allah itself. Are there miraculous signs of, you know, how Allah looks inside the psyche of the human being in the beginning of the surah? And He tells the human being even what He is thinking without even saying it? You know, it's one thing for the Messenger of Allah وسلم, to know what the person said. How is He going to know what the person thinks? Does He think no one will have control? Does He think no one saw Him? Now the person is thinking, nobody's going to control me, nobody saw me. Allah tells him what's he, what he's even thinking. So there's a miraculous sign even inside of his, in his thought, Allah captured that in his revelation, subhanAllah. Even that they deny. So they're the ultimately cursed, they're refusing to reflect. They're refusing to think. They're refusing concern. And really that's the bottom line of this surah from the previous one. The people who will have the easiest transition to iman are people that are decent human beings, that are not engulfed in self-pleasure, that have concern for humanity, and that concern will lead them to the ultimate concern, and that's iman. That's iman. That's the, the logic that is being presented here in this surah beautifully. Finally, alayhim narul mu'sada. And this is an amazing balance of the Qur'an. When Allah spoke about the people of the right hand, He did not mention Jannah. He did not mention Jannah, right? But when he spoke about the people of the, the, the cursed people, he mentioned hellfire. He added something for the people of the hellfire. Why? The entire surah is essentially a surah of shiddah. And you know, tough words are used. Like a sabuni rahimahullah, he would say there's every surah has a jaw, has a climate. Every surah has a climate. And the climate of the surah is very tough. It begins with la, a tough word, right? Then there's words like al-aqaba, najdain. Iqtahama. The climate of the surah is very, it has a lot of shidda in it. So even the people of paradise, a little bit is mentioned about them, but more is mentioned about the people of hellfire. But if you look at the previous surah, what was given more emphasis? 
the, the ending emphasized more so the people of paradise. So it's sort of a balance between these two surahs that has been reached. So Allah says, عَلَيْهِمْ It is exclusively and especially upon them نَارٌ مُؤْصَدَةٌ A fire that has been sealed up. الْوَصْدُ خَطْمُ الشَّيْءِ إِلَى شَيْءِ Ibn al-Faris says. Wasd is to seal something on top of it with another thing. أَوْصَدْتُ الْقِدْرِ For example, you will say, I placed a lid on the stew. You know when the stew starts boiling and the steam starts coming out? You put a lid on it so the steam doesn't escape. That is isad. Allah says, عَلَيْهِمْ نَارٌ It is only upon them will be, there be a fire that is completely covered. Meaning the heat doesn't escape. You know, the heat of the fire doesn't escape, it goes and further intensifies what is inside, subhanAllah. Similarly, in Arabic expression, when you say, awsad al-bab, it means he locked the door when there were no other escapes either. Like if there, a room had windows you can get out of, then you won't say awsad al-bab, you'll just say aghlaq al-bab, or ghalaq al-bab, right? But you won't say awsad, awsad when there's no other escape. Right, so Allah says, عَلَيْهِمْ نَارٌ مُؤْصَدَةٌ Upon them, exclusively upon them, is a fire from which there is no escape. SubhanAllah. Now I'd like to inshallah ta'ala conclude with some commentary from, some, some glimpses of commentary from uh, uh, Father Salih Hassan al-Ra'i rahimahullah, who consistently connects the conclusions and the beginnings of surahs, and talks about the, the intricate relationship between them. He argues in the beginning of the surah, we found, لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي كَبَدْ we, no doubt we created the human being in toil. But that toil is for this dunya. And if he doesn't do the right thing, there's a far worse toil coming at the end. So the surah ends, عَلَيْهِمْ نَارٌ مُؤْصَدَةٌ It ties that toil of this world. If you don't do the right kind of toil, you'll end up in much worse toil in the end, which is closed off. It only gets worse and worse and worse. May Allah Azza wa Jal protect us from the, the, the flame of the fire. May Allah Azza wa Jal enter us directly into Jannah and not even have a see a whiff and a draft of the hellfire. Barakallahu li wa lakum fil Qur'an al-Hakim wa nafa'ni wa iyyakum bil ayati wa dhikr al-Hakim. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.